Hi, how are you? It's great to see you guys. Um, great to be joined by the folks at North Shore and Aurora and Chicago Cathedral and Crystal Lake and at Rolling Meadows. I don't know if you guys know this, but uh, we started a service on Saturday nights at Rolling Meadows where I was last night, which was poppin'. So if, uh, if, listen, if you ever are like, ah, this video thing's driving me crazy, you should go to Rolling Meadows on Saturday nights, five o'clock, always, always live. Uh, but if you prefer seeing me on video, which, believe me, seeing me in live is really a letdown. So, um, <laughs> total aside, okay, it has nothing to do with anything. I was in Costco one time, uh, the church I used to work for, we did video venues and stuff as well, so... I was in Costco one time, and this lady walked up, and she said, oh my, you're Jeff Bugnam. And I said, yes, I'm Jeff, yeah, hi. And shook her hand, and she, she held my hand for a minute. She said, I've never seen you in person. And I said, oh, well, what do you think? And she said, eh. <laughs> I mean, she said, I, I thought you'd be, I don't know, taller. Yeah, I have that effect on people. Bit of a letdown. So, you folks here in Elgin, join the letdown. Here we go, Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. You're going to need a Bible. We're going to go all over the place in the scriptures. It's okay. I got you covered with my little board here. Um, while you're turning there, Acts chapter 1, verse 12, I just want to tell you, um, I had a friend a number of years ago who told me a story that, that at first sounded hard to believe, but he's not the kind of guy who exaggerates these kinds of things, and so I, I believe it to be true. He said he was at the doctor, and uh, they were getting their daughter checked for, for something. Uh, at the end of the doctor's appointment, they said, well, this is gonna be $200. And he was a pastor in a small town, and he said, I don't, I don't, have, $200. <laughs> I don't have $200. And we hadn't met the deductible in their, in their health insurance. You know, small town uh, churches don't usually pay very well. And so as a result, uh, he, just didn't, he just didn't have it. And so the doctor's office was like, well, I'm not sure what we're gonna do here. Is there any way for you to call anybody or get any kind of, you know, it's $200 anyway. Family didn't live there, lived far away. So he said, look, uh, if you give me about 15 minutes, I, I will drive back to my house, see if I can find something. So he goes outside, gets in the car, and he says to the Lord, all right, God, you called me here into the middle of this place, and you, you said... You said, Lord, that um, you, know, you, you will provide for us better than the ravens are provided for. <laughs> so I need 200 bucks. <laughs> and I don't know where, how it's gonna happen between now and the next 15 minutes. So I get home and I come back, but I need, I need it. So he drove in this small town back to his house. I don't know what he expected. I don't know if he thought that the bills were gonna fly through the window or, or something, but he, he got back to his house and there was the, the mail truck was right outside of his house blocking his driveway, so he had to stop. And so he thought, oh, he knew the, ma he knew the guy. So he hopped out of his car and said hello. And the mail guy said, yeah, okay, I just dropped your mail off. I gotta go, I gotta do my route. So he took off. And since he was out of his car already, he opened the mail and there's one letter in it. One letter in it, he opened it up, it was a $200 refund from some company that he had forgot about a number of years ago. He looked at the outside and noticed that it had been postmarked about a week prior. So he cried, and he went back and paid, he paid the, the doctor. When he told me this story, at the end of it, I remember him saying this phrase. He said, Jeff, it was such a God thing. All right, so I have some questions. 
here they are. What isn't a God thing? Would it have been a God thing if he didn't find the money in the mailbox? How many things are God things? Would, would this have happened had he not prayed? I mean, the letter had been sent one week prior, and so I assume that it was already there. So, I don't know, if he just drove home and had forgotten to pray, would he have gotten there and opened the thing? Well, like, what part does prayer play in God fulfilling this particular miracle? What part does prayer play in all the God things? If God promises something will happen, do you need to pray about it? Why would you? I mean, he's God. He can do what he says. The Bible says that all over the place. Why would you pray about it? And if everything is a God thing, uh, then where does our free will come in? Because that sounds like God is like the sovereign chess master, and we are pawns being moved around a board. This passage, Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 26, actually answers a lot of these questions. I know it sounds weird, because if you read Acts 1, 12 to 26, one of the things that you will notice is it just seems like, I don't know, simple little retelling of stuff that is not that important. I mean, you have uh, the promise of the Holy Spirit in the passage prior, and then the passage that follows, Acts 2, you have the coming of the Holy Spirit. Those seem important, right, in the retelling. So, but in the meantime, Luke adds these, I don't know, this little vignette about choosing another guy and how they got back from the, the, the hill outside Jerusalem to Jerusalem, they prayed a lot. I mean, it's, it's great, it, fill, it fills in the gaps of the story, but it just, it's one of those passages that when you're reading it during your, you know, reading program every year where you're studying the Bible, you're like, yeah, yeah, this doesn't have a whole lot to do with me. Let's get on to the spirit and the fire and the tongues and all that. Let's do that. But I'm going to tell you that this passage, there's a thread that is woven through it about God's providence, about God's sovereign control of the world that I want to show you. These people are all living underneath the divine authority and providence of God. And I want to show you how they deal with that. How do you live in a world as a Christian where God is in control? How should that influence the way that you think, the way that you live, and the theology you have about things like suffering and evil? So this is going to be a lot of fun. I threw a bunch of theology in the middle, so be ready. I'm so excited. Okay, so... Three things we're going to learn. Number one, God's promises are claimed through prayer. Second, God's plans are accomplished through our choices. And third, God's providence is over everything. You ever notice that I'm from Dallas Theological Seminary, so I graduated. They taught you you always have to have three points in the sermon because you know the Trinity. So God's promises are claimed through prayer. I'm kidding. It's not the Trinity. Um, God's plans are accomplished through our choices, and God's providence is over everything. Here's the first of those. God's promises are claimed through prayer. Verse 12, and we go to the big board. Verse 12, Acts chapter 1, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. Okay, so, so this word then is signaling that there was something previous. What, what just happened? Remember, the, the uh, disciples are standing looking at the clouds 
because Jesus had just ascended from the earth into the clouds. And they were looking up intently because that's what you do when people levitate into the clouds. So they're looking at the clouds and all of a sudden these two guys come along and they're like, what are you guys looking at? And they're like, what do you mean? What are you looking at? You see the dude float up there? That guy, right? And the angel said, well, you know he's gonna come back the way he left, right? So in other words, look, he, he's, he's, there's a gap between the time he's gone that way and he's gonna come back. But in the meantime, get about the work, guys. The mission's out there. He told you the Spirit's gonna come upon you and you're gonna be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Stop staring at the clouds. It's not gonna help anything. So they listened to the guys and then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem. It's a, it's a Sabbath day's journey. It's about half a mile. The Jews had certain rules about what you could do during a Sabbath, and they determined that it was work if you walked over half a mile. Amen? <laughs> but half a mile, not work. Sabbath day's journey away, and, and when... They had entered, entered Jerusalem. They, they went up to, to the upper room. This should sound familiar if you read the Gospels. Remember they were up in the upper room hiding from the Jews because, you know, if this Jesus got, got hung up, he probably, we're probably gonna be next. So they were up there in the upper room where they were staying and, and Peter and John, so he's gonna list off all of the, of, the, uh, of the disciples and there's only 11 of them now because Judas isn't there anymore. Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and, and Judas, the son of James. Not Judas Iscariot. There were a couple Judases in this group. And all of these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. Notice that language. With one accord. And they were devoting themselves. It's a, it's a, it's a constant act. All with one mind toward one particular goal, devoting themselves repeatedly to prayer. It wasn't just sitting down, oh yeah, God, it would be really great if you did this or that. It was this constant prayer meeting that was taking place. All with one accord toward a particular end. What end do you think that is? Well, look, if you look at the context, what just happened was the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit, and then what follows is the actual coming of the Holy Spirit. So it doesn't take a rocket scientist to, feel, to realize, ah, they're probably praying about the coming of the Holy Spirit. They took the, pray, they took the promises of God, prayed about them, and then saw them fulfilled. Promises God, prayed about them, and then saw them fulfilled. Fulfilled. I have a question at that point then. Why in the world would you do that? As I said before, if God makes a promise about something and he is a sovereign God, why in the world would we pray about seeing it come to fruition? Like if, isn't the promise kind of making prayer superfluous, sort of unnecessary? In fact, um, John Stott, an old pastor, he wrote about this passage. He said, there can be little doubt that the grounds of their unity and perseverance in prayer were the command and promise of Jesus. He had promised to send them the Spirit soon. He had commanded them to wait for him to come and then to begin their witness. 
We learn, therefore, says John Stott, that God's promises do not render prayer superfluous. On the contrary, it is only his promises which give us the warrant to pray and the confidence that he will hear and answer. In other words, the promises of God should not stop you from praying. They should be a motivation because God says, if you pray about this thing, it's gonna happen. My son, second son, uh, is a, a pest. God bless him. Like, a, ever since he was a little kid, if he, if he wanted something, he would not leave it alone, right? It's probably why he has everything, because I'm just like, oh, I'm done. Yes, you can have it, you know? So when he was young, and I would say something like, hey, your mom's got to go, we got to go out, and, and, and we're going to go with your mom to this place, uh, but in order for you to come, we'll go to ice cream, okay? We'll go to ice cream today. He said, you promise? Yeah, promise that we're gonna go to ice cream. So then we go out, you know, to, I don't know, the fabric store or whatever, where children go to die, <laughs> don't they? All the little boys here, young men are like, oh, I remember that. <laughs> it's the worst place ever. So we're gonna have the fabric store, we sit in the corner and pretend that we like fabric. And uh, wife looks for all this stuff, and the whole time he's saying, Dad, are we getting ice cream? Yeah, we're gonna get ice cream. You sure? Yeah, you said. You, Dad, you said, you said we were getting ice cream. When we leave the store, Dad, you said we're gonna, is it ice cream time now? Because you said, because you said, I know I said, we have to go to this one other place yet. Uh, really, can we get ice cream on the way? No, we're gonna get ice cream later. But you promised, you promised, you promised, this is what kids do, right? You promised, you promised, you promised. The promise that you make seems to motivate them to remind you that you made it. So that you will then Fulfill the promise. Quite honestly, this is what the Lord is teaching us here. That don't take my promises and just assume that they will be fulfilled. I'm going to fulfill them because I'm true to my word, but I'm going to fulfill them through your prayer. So um, the promises of God should ignite our prayer. We persistently ask him because we know he answers those promises, this is a practice that people, Christian people, have done for years and years. Some of the greatest prayers in the Christian church's history have understood this. Find a promise in the scriptures, pray that promise, and see God fulfill it. Uh, a guy named uh, George Muller, one of the great, great men in the history of the Christian church, he was great because he opened an orphanage in England and never told anybody that he needed their money. He would tell God, Lord, um, I got a whole bunch of orphans here. You say you care for the widows and orphans. You also say that you're going to, you know, feed and care for people. The ravens are taken care of and they don't toil and spin and all that kind of stuff. So I'm just gonna trust that you are gonna provide everything we need. But I'm not gonna go out on the circuit and start putting, you know, a big thermometer up. Hey, we almost reached this. We're not doing any of that. I'm just gonna pray to you about it. And some amazing things happened in his ministry. Um, one of the most famous was that one morning he came down and they did not have any food for the orphans, about 120 orphans in the room. And there they are all lined up at their tables and they had dishes in front of them. And he stood in front of them. He said, oh, let's, let's pray for the food. And the kids were looking at him and said, there's no food. Let's pray for the food. And he said, Lord, 
Thank you for the bread and milk that you're gonna provide because you promised to care for us and we shouldn't worry about these things, about what we should eat or what we should wear. You say, you know we have need of these things. Well, this morning we have need of these things and then amen. And the kids sat there looking around. A few minutes went by. No, no joke, by the way, this, this actually was recorded by one of the children who was in the room when they grew older. Knock at the door! And there's a man who's standing at the door. He's a baker. He, opens, he opened the door, and the baker says, I couldn't sleep all night last night because I had this sense that you needed bread here, so I went in, and I baked the bread. It was like, God wouldn't leave me alone, so I went in, and I baked the bread, and so I got a whole bunch of fresh bread. You need bread? Yes, we do. Turn to the children. The Lord has provided bread, and not just bread, fresh baked bread. One of the kids said, what about the milk? <laughs> Miller shocked his I'm sure the Lord's going to provide. Seriously, within the moment he was saying it, knock at the door. Opens the door up. Looks out past the person in the door. We see is a cart. It's a milk cart, the delivery cart, and it's broken down. One of the wheels fell off. Right in front of the orphanage, the, the milkman says, listen, uh, my milk just fell, fell, my milk truck fell apart here. I, I, I have all this milk and it's going to go bad unless I give it to somebody. So here you are. Gives a whole bunch of milk. There's a guy named R.A. Torrey in 1924 who wrote about George Muller and how he prayed and he said, one of the mightiest men of prayer of the last generation was George Muller of Bristol, England, who in the last 60 years of his life, he obtained the English equivalent of $7.2 million by prayer. But George Muller never prayed for a thing just because he wanted it, or even just because he felt it was greatly needed for God's work. When it was laid upon Muller's heart to pray for anything, he would search the scriptures to find if there was some promise that covered the case. Sometimes he would search the scriptures for days before he presented his petition to God. And then he, when he found the promise with his open Bible before, he presented his petition to God. And he would plead that promise. And so he received what he asked. He always prayed with an open Bible before him. Is that how you pray? Is that how we pray? I'll tell you how I pray, uh, Lord, I want this particular thing that you haven't promised at all, but I want, I want it, I want it, I want it, I want it. Nothing wrong with telling the Lord everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. But he will always answer according to his promises. So perhaps you should pray his promises. You say, well, well what, I don't know, what kind of promises, what difference does that make? Okay, so you're in financial need? You're kind of a George Muller dealing with this sort of thing. You go to a passage and you say, well, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples about money. He said, uh, therefore I tell you, don't be anxious. See that? It's a command. Don't be anxious about your life, what, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is it's more than food. And the body more than clothing. So consider... Consider the ravens, not even really good birds. It's not an eagle or anything, they're just ravens. The pigeons of the ancient world. Consider the pigeons. They, they neither sow 
nor reap. They've neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you're not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They don't toil or spin. You don't drive by them and see them working really hard. Yet I tell you, look, even Solomon, the richest guy in the history of history, in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you Oh, you have little faith. Why why wouldn't you take this passage and say to God, you said, you said this, Lord. You see the need. You see what's going on in my life. I know that my understanding of my needs are probably more wants than needs in many cases, but Lord, you said you'd take care of us and our needs. I am more value to you than the pigeons, and I am more value to you than the grass of the field. Prove it, you said. Or you say, well, maybe financial needs is not the issue. I'm just struggling with suffering in the worst possible way. My life has gone completely haywire and I don't know what to do. Why wouldn't you go to Romans 8, 28 and say, and we know, look, we know that for those who love God, yes, I love God, all things, not just a few, but all things are working together for good. Now, that's an eternal good. It might might not be what you exactly expect in the present moment, but it's all working together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Anybody who's a Christian is called. Why wouldn't you say, Lord, I don't understand what's going on here. I have no idea, but you said that you would take this and you would use it for my good. So in this moment where it feels like I'm in a mist, I'm going to trust that you have a pathway through it that leads to a meadow, and in that meadow I will see your glory and purpose, and I will praise you. You said, Lord. But what about my sin? I struggle so much with my sin, these besetting sins, the things that I keep doing over and over again, and I go back to God, and I go back to God, and I feel so embarrassed and horrible, and everybody, if anybody knew about it, it would be proof that I, I'm not actually what I claim to be. But if we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, he is faithful and just. See, it's an issue of justice to him, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You said, Lord, that you would forgive. So I come over and over and over because you said that you would forgive. And just because I know that anxiety is actually the biggest issue today, uh, don't be anxious about anything. Anything. But in everything, by by prayer and supplication, uh, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 
And here's the promise. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. I shouldn't be peace in this particular moment, but I am. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard, great word, our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's like he puts his angels around your mind as sentries and says, there is no fear that will enter here. All beyond this moment, beyond this spot, say the angels, is peace. You said, Lord, you said. Why wouldn't you pray like this? It's only four promises. It's a lot of promises in Scripture. God's promises are claimed through prayer. So, so claim them. Right, second, God's plans are accomplished through our choices. Verse 15 of Acts chapter 1. Back to the story. So in those days, right, they're in the upper room together praying. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all oh, about 120. It's a big room, right? And, and they said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit, he spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Okay, so that another, there's some scripture that the Holy Spirit spoke through David. He's referring to some psalms here, and it was about Judas. Just think through that for a minute. So, so thousands of years prior to Judas, the Holy Spirit spoke something through David concerning him. This Judas, he became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For Look, he was numbered among us. And he was allotted his share in this ministry. Like he, was, he was in the squad. Now this man, he acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his, his bowels gushed out. That's so great. Don't you love the Bible? Thank you very much, Dr. Luke. Right? And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So that field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that, it, that means the field of blood. And here's the Psalms that David wrote, he says, for it's written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become de desolate. Whose camp? Judas's. Written by David in the Psalms thousands of years prior. May his camp become desolate and that there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. Wait a minute. So what happened to Judas was planned? What happened to Judas? Well, um, here's, here's what happened to Judas. Judas was, uh, Jesus one goes up on a hill be, at the beginning of his ministry and he prays in the evening, comes down and he selects 12. One of those 12 is, Ju is Judas. <clears throat> These are gonna be his guys. They are there during all the big moments. Right, so they're in a boat together and Jesus is asleep on a cushion and the waves come up and they're like, we're gonna die. Even the fishermen are in the, in the boat are like, we're dead. So they go up to Jesus and say, don't you care that we're dying? And Jesus gets up groggy and says, peace be still, all the water, calm, immediately. Judas was there to see that. 
Or when they were on a beach together and there were 5,000 men, what, 15,000 total people because they only really count men in those days. There are all these people and Jesus turns to the disciples and says, it's kind of dinner time. Why don't you guys go feed these people? (laughs) We have like a single Starbucks cart right here. Jesus is like, it's not gonna work. Send them back into the town and see if they can get one of those cheap McDonald's things. I don't know what we're gonna do. And Jesus said, well, this little kid here, he's got some some loaves and fish. Why don't you start just passing it out? <laughs> you can imagine the disciples, okay. So they start walking around and they pass it out and pass it out and pass it out. When they feed all these thousands of people, at the end they says that they have 12 baskets full. I assume that means that each one of the 12 apostles were holding a basket. Judas was holding a basket. Judas was one of the guys passing out the loaves. And they just, every time he'd look down, oh, there's another one, oh, there's another one. He saw that, this guy. He was one of those 72. There's, they went out in pairs on this mission trip, and Jesus said, when you go out, you're gonna go into these places, you're gonna cast out demons in my name, you're gonna do mighty miracles, all these great things. And he goes out and he sees the power of God through the promises of Jesus. This guy, this guy, who's like a front row seat to the greatest show in the history of the world, this guy, for 30 pieces of silver, decided to betray him. For 30 pieces of silver. And he gives him a kiss, right? It's a stab in the back. We use the language now, Judas kiss. He's a Judas to me. It's like he stabbed me in the back. And so here's the question that was raised in the early church. If Jesus was really God, so an early, somebody in the early church would go out and they try to share the gospel, the message about Jesus to somebody in the Roman world, they'd go out and they'd tell the story and one of the questions they got back immediately was, okay, if this Jesus was God, how in the world did this Judas guy dupe him? Like if, if you're God, shouldn't you be able to determine whether or not this dude, in fact, he, Jesus chose him, he turned on him and killed him. So, what, so what's going on? Was, was Jesus duped? What's really interesting is when you start getting into the passages in the New Testament, especially the Gospels, you end up finding out that all during this period of, of the death of Christ, when he's being led to the cross and all these things, the Gospel writers are always like they insert little phrases to make you realize, ah, he knows all about it. So, Luke 22, verse 21, but behold, so they're at the Lord's, at the, um, at the Lord's Supper, the, at the um, Passover meal, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. You can see him just looking at Judas, but woe to the dude who's gonna betray me. Hey, but it was determined. John 18, Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, he went there, there being the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is praying before he's arrested. They went there with lanterns and torches and weapons and then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward, said to them, whom do you seek? 
Is he looking for information? Is he like, hmm, I wonder which one of these guys you guys are here for? No, he's saying this, probably looking in Judas' eyes. Who do you seek, Judas? He knew all that was gonna take place. And then even in our passage here, Acts 1, 16, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand concerning Judas. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. And so was Jesus duped? No, it was planned before the foundations of the world. Okay, then that makes no sense. Because which is it? Did God plan it or did Judas make a choice? to do it? And the answer, yes. The answer is yes. And you find this all over, this all over the Bible. Judas was a tragedy and an embarrassment. He was a pimple on the face of the early Christian witness. But God planned for him to fulfill his role. But he also held Judas responsible for doing it. God's sovereign plans are accomplished through our free choices. God's sovereign plans are accomplished through our free choices. The Bible is really replete with this. Men of Israel, this is Peter preaching to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish people. He said, men of Israel, hear these words. See, this Jesus of Nazareth, he's trying to explain what happened when they killed Jesus. He was a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You got him because God determined you'd get him. He knew all about it. You got him because he willingly went there according to a plan that was made in eternity past. This man, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Don't you see? Both are true. God planned it, and you guys are wicked for doing it. Have you ever seen that movie, Ocean's Eleven? <laughs> I don't know if you've seen movies like that. Ocean's Eleven is this movie where in the middle it seems like everything's going wrong for the characters and all of a sudden at the end of the movie all the threads come together and you're like, oh my gosh, it was all part of a plan. Have you ever seen movies like that? And at the end of the film you look over to your spouse and you're like, that was cool. Right? It felt like in the middle, my wife says this sometimes, there's no way for this to end happy. And then through a series of circumstances, the, the, the playwright, the director, works it all together. So at the end, all the ties are tied. All the threads make sense. And you say, wow, what a director. Do you think that maybe this is the way that God is working his world? That all the things that look like chaos to us, and how is this ever going to end happy? All these bad things are happening to us. Maybe those are threads that from our point of view look like chaos, but God is weaving them together into an ultimate tapestry that at the end of time we will see and say that is the kind of sovereignty God has. Not the kind of dictatorial, I'm going to move you from this point in the chessboard to the other without your will, but instead takes your will. You do what you want, but he always gets what he wants. That's the God you want. That's the God who is To be honest with the Bible, we say two things are true at once. 
people are responsible to make choices for which they will be held accountable. And second, God sovereignly uses those choices to achieve his ends. And you do know that that gives you peace, right? Because when somebody cheats you out of money or cheats you in a way that injures you, there are two things you say in the same time. You say, this was wicked. This was evil. God decries it as evil, and this person who's done it will be judged for it. Maybe not now, but there will be a day where they stand before God and have to give an account for it. But even so, God is sovereign, and he promises he's going to take that thing, and he's going to use it for my good and his glory. Both are true. We don't just say, oh, it's no big deal because God's going to work it out. No. Oh, and what's going to happen because we don't know what's going to happen because it's so wicked. No. Both are true. So when we live, I don't know, let's pretend that we're under some sort of government that has like, I don't know, tyrannical dictator tendency. Anyway, if you can picture that at all. I, you're sitting there and you're thinking to yourself, how is this ever going to work out? What is going to happen? The church is under siege. We don't just say, well, it's no big deal because Jesus is going to work it out. No, that's wicked. They're, what they're doing is wicked. But God's going to work it out. So we both have peace and we don't feel like we have to fight back. We, we can with a smile say, oh, you're going to get it. <laughs> but in the meantime, all your plans to try to destroy me and everything else are a waste of your time. Because there's nothing that will happen to me in this life that doesn't happen without the express permission of Jesus who loves you. Right, last one. His providence then is over everything. Should be proven at this point. But here, notice the end. This is, this is a great little ending to this passage. Here we go. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these guys, he, he must become with us a witness to the resurrection. Witness means that you, he's gonna testify to what he saw with us. Judas is gone, we need 12, so we need to find somebody else. And, and we need to find somebody, it can't be just anybody, they have to be somebody who's like qualified, they have to have seen it all and been with us the whole time. And so they put forward two guys, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. Joseph and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Jesus tur Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And in order to make the decision, they cast lots for them. Can you imagine doing this for uh, a spouse? This is a great idea, by the way, young men. Listen, if you got two girls in your mind right now, and you say, I don't know which one to pick, you say, God, uh, I'm going to put two rocks in this jar, and one's going to be named Kate and the other one Jane, and you're going to shake it all up, and then you're going to let it dump out, and the first rock that come out, that's your new spouse. And if she doesn't buy it, you go take it to her and say, God said, because of this, Right? Right? <laughs> no, all the ladies, what? By the way, please don't take that seriously at all. Like if some guy comes up to you ladies, you just say, no, get out of here, that's ridiculous. 
And the reason you should say it's ridiculous is because this is not describing something that you ought to be doing. In fact, after the Spirit comes in the next passage, you never find anything about casting lots again. Because God has given the Holy Spirit to you in order to make decisions about the future. (laughs) He dwells in you. But isn't this interesting that they do this? With full confidence that God is going to answer the prayer through this weird lot casting. It's almost as if they believe that God is in charge of all the big stuff and the little tiny things. It's almost as if they know the book of Proverbs where it says the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. It's almost as if they believe that God is present and active in our world in ways that you and I don't even know. He's on the move. Aslan is on the move, even when you don't see it. Which is important for people like us because we use these kinds of phrases, right? Um, that was lucky. What a lucky turn. Wow, that was a that was a great coincidence to meet you today. How fortunate we are to be here. We, we use those words, right? Luck, fortune, coincidence. Those aren't Christian words, guys. I know what we mean by it, but those aren't Christian words. See, Christians talk about providence. We talk about difficult providences, right? The things that we're not really happy about, but they're still providences. And we talk about great, happy providences. But we talk about providence because everything that is happening around us, small, big, medium, all providence of God, all of it. And the sooner that you and I get our minds wrapped around that that's the way we ought to function in our world, the sooner you and I will have the peace that God intends us to have by knowing that he's in charge by knowing that he's involved. So look, I'll finish with this great, this great little story. Francis Schaeffer was, um, he was an apologist years ago, 1960s. He was on a plane once. He wrote about it. He nearly died. He said, once I was flying at night over the North Atlantic, and I was in, it was in 1947, and I was coming back from my first visit to Europe. Our plane one of those old DC-4s with two engines on each wing was within two or three minutes of the middle of the Atlantic. Suddenly, two engines on one wing stopped. I'd already flown a lot, and so I could feel the engines going wrong. I, I remember thinking, if I'm going to go down into the ocean, I better get my coat. Like, what? When I did, well, it's cold in there, right? I be, when I did, I said to the flight attendant, there's something wrong with the engines. She was a bit snappy and said, you people always think there's something wrong with the engines. Trust the doctors. Sorry, that was a total nother. Okay, so, so I shrugged my sho- I'm kidding, right? So I shrugged my shoulders, but I took my coat. I had no sooner sat down than the lights came on and a very agitated co-pilot came out. We're in trouble. He said, hurry and put on your life jacket. So down we went. We fell and fell until in the middle of the night with no moon, we could actually see the water breaking under us in the darkness. And as we were coming down, I prayed. Interestingly enough, a radio message had gone out, an SOS that was picked up and broadcast immediately all over the United States and a flash news announcement. 
There's a plane falling in the middle of the Atlantic. My wife heard it. And at once, she gathered our three little girls together and they knelt down and began to pray. Now they were praying in St. Louis, Missouri and I was, on, I was praying on the plane and we were going down and down and then while we could see the waves breaking beneath us and everyone was ready for the crash, suddenly the two motors started and we went on to our destination. So when we got down, I found the pilot and asked what happened. Well, he said, it's a strange thing, something we can't explain. Only rarely do two motors stop on one wing, but you can make an absolute rule that when they do, they're not gonna start again. Well, we don't understand it, he said. So I turned to him and I said, I can explain it. He looked at me, how? And I said, my father in heaven started it because I was praying. That man had the strangest look on his face and he turned away. Is that how you see your world? Like Francis Saver? Or more like the pilot? With all these lucky things happening all the time. I'm just an unlucky person. You do realize that the moment that you start embracing the sovereign providence of God, it will have a profound effect on your life. Huge effect. You, you will start thanking God more because you'll start understanding that everything that you have, every single thing that you have, all your gifts, ability, money, every, all comes down from the Father of lights. It's all given to you by a loving God. You also have hope in the midst of suffering because you know, you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that even though it's happening now and you don't understand it, the throat threads will come together. And this will have a purpose. And one day you will stand before God and give him glory for all that he did. And you will live in hope of that day. And it'll increase your humility in planning. You won't say things like, well, I'm gonna do this and plan this every five years and we're gonna make this much money. No, you'll say, if the Lord wills, I'll be alive. But whatever happens, it's gonna be the hands in a providential God who loves me enough to give his son for me. And ultimately, it'll increase your confidence in prayer because you know he's there. You know he's there. Never will I leave you or forsake you. And you know he's listening and you know he's active and you know that there's nowhere that you go that his eye is not upon you for your good, Christian. Oh, we would have the peace. Oh, that we would have the peace that comes from knowing that the God who loves us enough to give us his son is in charge of all the big and little events in our lives. He's weaving them together for our good and his glory. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Father, I'm so thankful for your goodness. I'm thankful, Father, you can be trusted. I'm thankful, Father, you know more than we do. And I'm thankful that we can sit under that beauty, beautiful providence and open our hands up and say, Lord, I don't understand what's going on around me, but I trust you to judge the wickedness, and I trust you to work it for good. Give us hope today as we leave. Give us hope today that your plan is being worked out in our midst, even when we can't see it, as we look forward to the day when all of this will be put to rest. So it's in hope we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.